This Talking Flutes podcast is kindly sponsored by Trevor James Flutes, making life sound beautiful. You can show them some flute love by following them on Instagram at TJ Flutes, Trevor James Flutes on Facebook, and at trevorjamesflutes.com. were the opening bars of one of my favourite pieces of music, Jean-Michel de Mars's Sonate en Concert. This was written in 1952 for Geoffrey Gilbert and the cellist William Pleath, although the cello part is ad lib. Now ad lib means literally at one's pleasure, so the piece can be played with or without cello, and in fact the first performance was for the flute and piano version alone. Demars was a prolific flute composer, and I don't think he's ever had the recognition that he deserves. His works include three concertos, two double concertos, nine flute and piano works, cadenzas for the Mozart concertos, five books of studies, and lots of chamber music. I have mentioned his first study book in a previous podcast. These are advanced studies, and Demars didn't write in any dynamic markings. He left all the musical nuances to be decided by the performer. They're a great way to test a student's musical creativity or lack of creativity. They make you think and push your musicality. Demar started composing at the age of nine, which was in 1937 in Bordeaux in France. He went on to study at the Paris Conservatoire and then toured the world as a concert pianist before devoting his time to composition and teaching. His style can be described as playful, elegant, tonal, and very attractive. The Sonata en Concert is neoclassical in style. Neoclassical was a movement in the 20th century, around the years of 1915 to about 1940, which was aimed at avoiding too much emotion and to return to the style of the pre-romantic composers although here there is so much expressive writing. The piece is typical of Demars's compositional style, elegant and attractive. The writing is in dance form, held together by recurring extracts from the opening majestic bars. The prelude is a grand majestic opening. Here you need to be confident, project your sound. Imagine you're filling a huge concert hall with your sound. This is beautifully expressive, warm music. Let your vibrato warm your sound. There are two distinct dolce sections where there is almost a reflective mood and contrasts beautifully with the opening. Let's have another listen. Thank you. 
following on from the prelude is the lively rigodon. Originally, this was a French Baroque dance. It's characterised by simple eight-bar phrases and was very popular as a court dance during the reign of Louis XIV. It remained in fashion throughout the 18th century as well. As you can imagine, the mood is so different from the prelude. Here the writing is light and delicate with a nod to the hopping movements of the original court dance. As you can hear, there are a few fast scale passages. The best way to practice these are by using my rolling scale technique. I've written about these in my book Flute Reboot, so if you have a copy, it's in lesson 12. After the rigodon, there is a linking section using the prelude theme, leading to the lush tones of the aria. An aria is a solo melody with accompaniment. They are most frequently heard in operas and the word derives from the Italian word meaning air. The aria in opera was a chance to be expressive and show some emotion after the recitatives. This aria is no different with its sustained, fluid and expressive phrases. Following the aria comes the intermezzo, its meaning being a composition which fits between other musical elements, and here it fits between the two arias. I think this is one of the trickier sections of the piece. It's difficult to make the detail of the grace notes clear. The mood changes dramatically once again to something more rustic and harsh almost. There are two clear sections in the intermezzo one articulated and the other legato. Try and differentiate between the two. If you struggle with the grace notes and trills, practice by stripping the sections down to their simple elements and then gradually build up to the more complex. By that, I mean play without any grace notes and trills first to feel the rhythmic energy and pulse and then add the decorations bit by bit.
After the intermezzo, the aria makes a gentle return in the low register to calm everything down and help introduce the Sicilienne. Now Siciliennes are always written in 6 or 12-8 time with lilting rhythms and gentle mood. This one is no exception. Finally, we have the jig, a lively dance. In classical suites, the jig was always at the end, the final energetic and vibrant fling. Clear articulation is essential here and taking care to let the energy and vibrancy build up to the final pumoso coda, which keeps its intensity right to the final bar. Then was my brief look at Jean-Michel de Mars's Sonate en Concert, the most wonderful piece of music and a fabulous choice for programme planning or as an addition to your repertoire. Composed in 1979, this concertante work by John Rutter is written for harpsichord, flute and string orchestra. Rutter composed the piece in six movements for a concert at which Bach's Fifth Brandenburg Concerto was to be performed and so decided to write the piece for the same ensemble. In this podcast from 2019, number 68, Claire looks at two movements in particular, the rondo and the aria. But first, a little bit of background information on John Rutter. He is an English composer, conductor, editor, arranger and record producer. His compositions are mainly choral, including Gloria, Requiem, Magnificat, the Gift of Life and Visions. He's also composed and arranged many Christmas carols and his music has featured in two royal weddings, so very popular. 
He writes in an eclectic style with a mixture of classical and crossover. I found it very interesting to read some of the quotes about Rutter. One is, the most celebrated and successful composer of carols alive today. A creator of not just carols, but wonderfully great things for the human voice. One British composer though, David Arditi, did not regard him as a sufficiently serious composer, saying that Rutter is hard to take seriously because of the way in which his sheer technical facility or versatility leads to a superficial, unstable crossover style which is neither quite classical nor pop and which tends towards mawkish sentimentality in his sugarly harmonised and orchestrated melodies. Pretty damning, but I, along with many, many other people, love the mix and crossover of styles. It's fresh and vital and fun. Perfect. David Wilcox considered Rossa the most gifted composer of his generation. So a mixed bag of quotes, but there's no doubt about the quality, beauty and enjoyment of his Sweet Antique, which is a fantastic addition to our flute repertoire and one which everyone should play. Let's talk about the piece in more detail. In 1979, Rutter was commissioned to write an instrumental piece for an English festival. He was inspired by the fact that in the programme was Bach's fifth Brandenburg concerto scored for flute, violin, harpsichord and strings. So he used the same instrumentation but featured the flute as the soloist and then he later transcribed the piece for flute and piano. There are six movements and they're based both on Baroque and classical styles, but with a contemporary twist. Rutter himself said that he was paying homage to the forms and styles of Bach's day. The first movement is a prelude, which would also feature in a traditional Baroque suite. This is marked tranquilo and certainly evokes that feeling with a very lyrical and meditative mood. The second and third movements are the ostinato and the aria, which I'll talk about in more detail in a moment. Following on from the aria is the waltz, marked jazz waltz. This is a long way away from the Baroque or classical style. It's bright, lively and fun, with lots of swing and syncopation and features a couple of virtuosic flute passages. Chanson is the next movement, which is almost like a Christmas carol. It has a very simple and sweet melody. The suite ends with a rondo in 5-8 time. So it has an irregular beat, lots of syncopation an exciting accelerando to the end. This is now firmly back into the style of the 20th century. There are some tricky trill fingerings and a difficult last flourish, which is easy to play with some alternative fingerings. But now we'll concentrate on the second and third movements, beginning with the ostinato. Let's listen to it. <laughs> Thank you. 
as you can hear, this is an incredibly lively and rhythmically interesting movement. So what is an ostinato? It comes from the Italian word for stubborn or obstinate and describes a phrase which is persistently repeated where each note carries the same weight or stress. This repetition can be a rhythmic pattern, part of a tune or a complete melodic phrase and that is what you can hear in the recording. Rutter marks the time as 6-8 and 3-4. So the whole movement has a strong rhythmic pattern switching between the times of 6-8 and 3-4. This mix of pulse helps create the excitement and the energy of the movement. Practicing saying the rhythm will definitely help you play it. So think in terms of a bar of two dotted crotchet beats followed by a bar of three crotchet beats. So for example, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. You'll notice that often the six, eight bars are articulated and the three, four bars are slurred. So it's important to show the definition between the two. The articulated notes are short and crisp with accents on each beat. Punch out these accents to help accentuate the rhythmical characteristics. Otherwise the whole movement will sound very bland. Take great care not to shorten the slurred notes, which would show a different rhythm entirely. Keep the length going through to each crotchet beat. The opening phrase of 10 bars is mark forte, as is the second phrase transposed up a third. The third phrase jumps down to mezzo piano and has a softer, gentler feel before moving into a linking passage back to the original motif. The end is a surprise with a coda that reduces in dynamic level to end on a pianissimo top A. That last note is tricky, but you could use an alternative fingering to help it speak more easily. Just slide your right hand little finger onto the low C sharp key and that top A will pop out very easily. The aria has the most glorious melody. Let's take a listen.
This is the movement that most closely resembles a piece of Bach's writing. It's in the key of E minor, starting with an eight-bar piano solo, which sets the mood of calmness and tranquillity. The flute enters with the same melody, Mark Cantabile. It's very legato, so keep the whole length of the notes and try and create your most beautiful singing and expressive tone. The bratus should be as subtle as possible so as not to disturb the exquisite melody line. When the second phrase starts at figure B, the key changes, so change the mood. Now it's a bit more insistent or urgent, pushing through to the top notes. Keep that singing quality as the dynamic increases. Don't let the tone become shrill or sharp. After a brief recap, the code is preceded by a short cadenza and the movement ends calm and serene. It's such a beautiful piece of melodic writing. To help communicate this serene and calm mood, try to keep the articulation light and soft. Don't attack the start of the notes, but gently stroke them. Your breathing should reflect the mood. There's plenty of time to take the breaths. Make them as silent as possible. To do this, lift your head slightly as you breathe in so that you keep your throat open. You need to feel the mood in order to communicate it. And that starts with a relaxed and controlled breath. That then is a brief look at our two movements. If you've never played this piece before, then please do. Talking Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.